At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God. The Lord, with this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a new year, new opportunities, fresh mercies for us to grow in your grace, new ways for us to move further and deeper into you and your mission and your love for us. This morning, Lord, we pray that your word would be used by your spirit in our lives, that as we gather here today and as we listen Father, that we would see your mercy and goodness, but we would also see, Lord, the high calling that you have for us. As John lays out these tests of authenticity, Lord, help us to see and to evaluate and assess and where your spirit brings conviction, Lord, might there be repentance, humility, and faith in you. We come to you this morning not on the basis of what we have done or our own accomplishments and pride, Lord, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And so we plead his grace, we pray you now help us in your word, and that you would change us to be more like Jesus. We ask this for your glory, and in your name, amen. And you can be seated. Have you ever forgotten something really, really important? I'm talking about the kind of thing that you just should not forget, like if you're married, your anniversary. You have children, their birthdays, you know, your birthday, big, important things. Have you ever forgotten one of those? Uh, Not just like the temporal sort of forgetting things like I forget my keys all the time and wonder where that is or where I've set my phone, but like things that you just should not forget, have you ever lost track of? I think it's probably true that all of us at some time or another, in some way or another, we've, we've just kind of blown it. The big project was due, the deadline was there, and we just kind of missed it. Oh, oh man, how stupid am I? Like, what a, how could I miss that? It just, it just drives us crazy. I loathe when there's an appointment on my calendar and I forget that it's, it doesn't very happen very often, but when I forget about that appointment or that meeting and I, and I miss it, and then I get the call, and I'm like, hey, were we going to meet today? I'm like, oh, no, I can't handle that. It's no good. I think we're 
many times forgetful people. We've got a lot going on in our lives. We've got a lot going on in the world. And so it, it makes sense that we would just kind of, from time to time, misplace things in our lives. And I think it's also true that we as the church, as Christians today, we can be forgetful people. I think it's probable that we have forgotten some important things as followers of Jesus. I think that our current cultural moment actually has us in a bit of a double forgetfulness sort of mindset. There's a couple things that we're forgetting. First of all, we are forgetting that the world is watching the church. The world being non-Christians, people who are not followers of Jesus, we forget that they are looking in and they are observing our lives. They're, they're, they're watching us, reflecting on us, not, not in a creepy way, but they're wanting to see is what we're saying and what we're doing consistent. It's what the apologist and philosopher Francis Schaeffer, the way he put it, he said, the church is before a watching world. They're observing us. But not only have we forgotten that the world is watching us, maybe we've forgotten something that's a little bit more fundamental. We've forgotten what the world is supposed to see. What is it that they're really supposed to see as they watch us? What is it that the non-Christian is supposed to observe about Christians as they look in and view the church? What is the characteristics, the virtues, the qualities of the Christian life that set it apart? The Christian church, the the church in America, has become so consumed with retaining political power and winning a cultural war that I think we actually, frankly, lost decades ago that we've forgotten about Jesus' words about what the world is supposed to see. This is what Jesus said. This is the way he put it in John 13. He says, I have new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, he says, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Some of our worship team was asking if I was going to sing the song this morning, you know, um, they will know we are Christians by our love. And many times I think we have changed the lyric to that song, like they will know we are Christians by our t-shirts, our our slogans. They will know we are Christians by how we vote. They will know we are Christians by what we get angry at. But that's not what Jesus says. He says they will know we are his disciples if we have love for one another. You see, what Jesus is saying here is the world will see us and has the right to judge the truthfulness or the hypocrisy of our claims to be a Christian on the basis of the love that they do or do not observe, on the basis of this one virtue, love. Jesus gives the world permission to assess if we are truly Christians by seeing our love or lack of love for each other. This is, again, what Francis Schaeffer calls the mark of the Christian. He says, Jesus gives the world a piece of litmus paper, a reasonable thermometer. There is a mark which, if the world does not see, it allows them to conclude this person is not a Christian. If we expect non-Christians to know that we are Christians, we must show the mark. What is the mark? It's not our t-shirts, it's not our slogans. It's not our fancy buildings. It's not any of that. It's the virtue, the forgotten virtue. Many people claim to know God. They they say, hey, I know him. I follow him. I walk with him. But do they really is the question. You might be here this morning, and you may make that claim yourself. 
say, yes, I, I know God, I walk with him, but I want to ask you, gently and yet directly, I want to ask you to evaluate if that is actually true in your life. If you claim to know Jesus, if you claim to walk with him, do the marks of authentic faith show up in your life? Are they real? Are they there? You can say, how will I know? <laughs> what am I supposed to be looking for? How will I know that this is true? This is what the letter of 1 John is all about. John is writing, this is the Apostle John, one of the 12 disciples, the one who he records and says Jesus loved, he had a close, deep relationship with Jesus. The Apostle John writes this letter to a church in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, that has just suffered a significant division within the church. False teachers came up in the church, they rose up, they created a posse, a group, and they left. They took some with them, and the church is kind of in pain and anguish, and they're wondering, are we, are we okay with God? Where do we stand? Their anguish is so much because this other group has said, no, 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 we're the real ones who know God. We're the real ones who have a close relationship with Him. We're the real spiritual ones. We've got the knowledge. You guys are just fooling around. They left. It was painful. And John is writing to this church to say, brothers and sisters, uh, or little children as he calls them, I want you to know what authentic Christianity is. I want you to know how you have true fellowship with God, how you are in fellowship with him. He says, I am writing to you that your joy may be complete. I'm writing to you so that you may know you have fellowship with him. And that we have fellowship together. John is writing so that the church knows exactly what it means to follow Jesus and what it looks like to be in him, what makes him a true Christian as a part and opposed to a false one. And John's point is this, that to know God is to love him. If you really know God, then you really love him. And that love bears itself out. And that's why we come to this forgotten virtue. How do we know that we love God? It's a point where we have to start at because if we're going to understand our relationship with God and with one another and with the world, we have to start with our relationship with God. So how do we know we love him? How do we know him? How do we know that we know him? To know God is to love him. And it's not just some sort of emotionalism in love, not some sort of fluttery, romantic, ooh, I like them sort of thing, but it's a real love. It's a grounded love. It's a sacrificial love, and it's an extensive love. John here gives the church, and he gives us today, some tests. He says, I want to help you evaluate your love. I want to help you see the authenticity of your faith so that you know, so that you're encouraged, so that you keep moving forward. And John provides a couple tests that answer if our love is real. If to know God is to love God, we have to ask, well, how do I know I really love him? What does that really look like? Our, how do we know our fellowship is true? These two tests reveal whether a person knows Christ. And so there, there are a, a couple of tests for you to assess within your life. Let's start with us individually and say, okay, where do I stand? Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. I think John would ask the same question. Look at your life. Do these marks show up that show that you're in fellowship with God? Let's look at these tests and try and assess them together and examine our hearts and lives here so that we know that our love for God is true and real. 
The first test, we might call it the moral test, or the test of obedience, you might say it this way. To know God is to obey Him. How do you know you really know Him? How do you know you really love Him? You obey Him. It's the mark of a true follower of Jesus. Here's what John says in verse 3. By this we know, so we have insight, we understand, it's concrete before us. We know that we have come to know Him. Here's how we have real knowledge about what we think we know. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep His commandments. And one of the things I love about John as a writer is that he is very plain and clear. I don't think I have to do a whole lot of work here to explain what he's talking about, okay? He makes it pretty black and white. Here's how you know that you know him. Here's how that you know that you you are in him. If you keep his commandments, if you obey him, it's, it's plain on the page there. John even takes a step further to help us assess this. There's some people making some claims out there. There's people that have statements about their faith. John here is speaking about the assurance of our faith. He wants to give us assurance about our faith and help us see things. But how do we experientially understand and know that we're in Christ? Do you obey Jesus' commands? Are you keeping his word? That's the clarity of it. Are you following him? Here's, Here's the claim that some are making. John says in verse 4, whoever says, I know him. So here's that, that claim. I'm in Christ. I have fellowship with him. I know him. For the first century, John's day and time, these were the Gnostics, these people that had this special knowledge of God. They, they taught, they were the false teachers that taught that they, you had to have some sort of secret insight into God. And so those who knew were really the, the spiritual ones and those who didn't know, you guys are just out on the sidelines. They divided the church split it asunder. And so they're making these claims saying, I know him. John's like, all right, let's assess the claim. There it is. You say you know him? Let's see what happens. Whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. (laughs) He flat out says it. If you say you know him, if you say you're in fellowship with Christ, that you walk with him, and yet you are disobedient to his word, you do not keep or obey his commandments, you are a liar. You're deceived. This claim of knowing him, it's not like the the knowledge of a celebrity, not knowing things about. Lots of people know doctrine. Even the demons know doctrine. That doesn't make you a Christian. The knowledge here is a relational knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's not like saying I know Barry Sanders or Beyonce or Blake Shelton. I know none of them, but I know a few things about them. It's a loving knowledge, a personal relationship, intimate and close. Jesus was looking for that kind of experiential knowledge in his followers, not just head knowledge, but life knowledge, shared knowledge. So Jesus can say to one of his disciples in John 14, Philip, who's just really struggling with the fact that Jesus has said he's going to go and leave them and ascend, and he is the way, and Philip says, Jesus, if you're the way, then you'll show us the way, like show us where you're going. And Jesus says to him in John 14, 9, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? I mean, Jesus is saying to Philip here, we've been together for three plus years. We're close. And yet when I make a statement that's pretty clear, like I'm going ahead of you, I'm going before you and you like, show us the way you still don't, you may know things about me, but you don't know me. The claim here is 
in Philip's case, is that somebody knows Jesus about him, but they don't really truly know him. The claim here in 1 John is that they're saying, I know things about him, but they don't really experientially know him. There's not this closeness of relationship. The claim proves false in this. A person who claims to know Jesus but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. They're not telling the truth. The truth is not in them. They're a liar. The truth is not in him. But on the positive, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So there's two people here. Some that say they know Christ, but they don't keep his commands. They're not walking in truth. There is a lie that they are believing and entrenching themselves in, and there are some who are keeping his word, and the love of God is being brought to full completion in their life. Who are you? Where do you stand? Are you claiming to know Christ, and yet chuck the Bible like you got the fire insurance out of hell, and you can do whatever you want? There's no obedience to him. Well, then you're walking in darkness. You're believing a lie. But if you're claiming to know Christ and you're feeding on his word and being obedient to it, to him, God's love, your love for God is being perfected. Your display of your love for him is being perfected. If you examine the way you live and you can't find obedience to Christ, you need to, you need to ask, am I truly in him? This is why the world has such a hard time believing Christianity today. They hear that Christians say, we have the moral high ground. Christians say, I know God. I know the Bible, and yet they look at the conduct of the lives of Christians, and they see a massive gap. Wait, that's not what Jesus taught. It's not what, how he lived it out. It's not what he said. And the world is correct in calling us liars. So that's why verse 5 is so important for us. We must see that we need to keep his word so that the love of God is brought to fruition in our lives. And furthermore, John says, by this we may know that we are in him. So he doubles down on it. So he says, let me be very clear for you here about what it means to know him. By this we may know that we are in him. Here's concrete evidence for you in the affirmative way. Whoever says he abides in him. The same word that Jesus uses in John 15 Abide in me and I in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John says, whoever abides in Christ, whoever remains in him, whoever walks with him, ought to walk in the same way and in which he walked. It's the principle of imitation. We see Jesus, we imitate Jesus. We see what he loves, we love that. We see how he speaks, we speak that way. We see how he shows compassion, we show compassion. Those who are in Christ, who abide in him, walk in the same way in which he walks. We love the things of Jesus. This is brought to bear. This is where the test shows reality for us. It's the essence of discipleship. Not merely getting head knowledge about the Bible and its parts and ideas, but walking or living as Jesus lived. It's the goal of our discipleship, to be like Christ to receive Jesus' words, to learn his ways, and to do his works. If, you're, if there's a disconnect in that, and you're claiming, I'm in Christ, but you're not looking like Jesus, loving like Jesus, living like Jesus, you're not standing in the truth. I think a way I can illustrate this is by helping us see relationally what it looks like. I love my children, and I know they love me, but we have a relationship where I provide for them, I care for them, 
And we're expected, they are at least, to, to love and to respect and to obey and to follow us as parents. One of the ways that I know my children love me and they respect me is that they obey me. They do what I tell them to do. Not just because I'm a tyrant, I hope I'm not towards them, or just because I'm control hungry, they're my children. I love them. I want to care for them and provide for them and protect them. And so when I give them instruction, oftentimes it's for their good. And when they follow through on that and obey, it's just a display that they actually do love me. It's for their good and me for them. The world is watching the church today and saying, okay, you call God your father, but do you actually obey your father? You say you love him, you say you're in him, but are you consistent with the life that he's given you to live? And the world watches the church and they look and they see and they go, frankly, I don't see it. It's not there. I know that might be challenging us for us to think about and to go, well, is the world really looking at the church saying, what a bunch of hypocrites? Yes, they are. Yes, they are. There's lots of claims to knowledge, lots of claims to truth and being the way, lots of doctrine, but very little follow-through in the church in obedience, very little consistency in obeying his word. Let me apply this at a personal level to each of us because it starts with each of us who claim to be followers of Jesus. Our claims to know him and to walk with him must be consistent with our obedience to his word. And you might go, well, okay, where? What, what word? What commands? And we ask that question because we want to pick and choose, right? We want to find the loopholes. We want to find the exemptions. We want to, you know, we want to get out of as much as we can so that we can beat the, meet the bare minimum. But the Bible doesn't give us that. It's all in or nothing, right? Which commands all of them. Jesus' teaching is clear. That's why we have the gospel record. If you, if you want just somewhere to start, Say, okay, what commands, where do I go? Pick up Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Let that sermon be the instructive place for you to start in understanding how to live out the ways of Jesus. You'll find, first of all, you're a failure ultimately, and that's why you need Jesus. But you'll find a life of the kingdom. So when Jesus says, and I'm just going to skip the Beatitudes, like, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I'll just skip those. Okay, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. He says, I affirm that. But... If you've got anger in your heart towards your brother, (laughs) that's shaky ground. And you've heard it said, don't don't commit adultery. And I affirm that, Jesus says. But I also say to you, don't look after a woman in lust. That's where it starts. It's a heart thing. Let your word be your word. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other to them. Show deference, show humility. I mean, these are the commands of Jesus. Love your enemies. How are we doing there? Jesus calls us to obedience. Or if you want to summarize it another way, you can go to Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. So God has said, here's what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What does obedience look like? Three things. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Clarity there. The Bible's really clear. This is what it means to be obedient, where you can sum it up in the way Jesus did as he summed up the entirety of the law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those who claim to know Christ, those who claim to walk in him, must walk in the same way in which he walked. And so that's where the first test comes in, the test of obedience, the test of holiness. Do you love God? 
Are you in him? Well, there must be real practical obedience to his word demonstrated in your life. And that's not the only test that John gives. He takes us to a second one. And this one, this test we might call the social test, the test of our relationships. It's one thing to say we're obedient to him, but how does this play itself out in a community, in a church, in a relationship? John here has a bit of a segue. He wants us to see what he's writing, and what he's writing isn't something he just made up on the fly. He wasn't just saying, I've got some ideas about how we should all get after this. He gets really intense and really close up. And so he says in verses 7 and 8, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. He's like, this is not new stuff. I didn't make us up. This is an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. And this starts all the way back at Genesis 1. Like, this is, this is primary stuff. This is an old commandment. You've had it. You've known it. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. It's been consistent with our training and our teaching and our discipleship all along the way. We are to be like Christ in imitating him. We are to be obedient to him and to his word. So it's nothing new that I'm saying to you. And then it sounds a little contradictory, but it's not. He says, but at the same time, so in the same way, this commandment is new. It is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Where does he, where does he get the idea that he can say it's a new commandment? Because he's just echoing what Jesus has said. Jesus called it a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you, John 13, 34, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. That's where it's new. And John says this, this is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him. Jesus has come and made this commandment, this new commandment, all the more expansive. Not just love your neighbor as yourself, but love one another as I have loved you. A sacrificial, extensive, full-hearted love. That's how you're to love one another. So it's a new commandment. It's new and it's true in him and it's true in you because of what Christ has done, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's like, just, just think about how darkness recedes. Darkness backs away. You've ever had a morning where you've just stood and seen the sunrise? It's dark and the stars are out and then there's just a ray of sunshine that hits and it pierces the darkness and the darkness begins to evaporate away back off john here is saying that's what the kingdom of god is like here's jesus the light of christ and his new command which is an old command to love one another as he has loved and as he breaks in as his kingdom breaks in the light shines and the darkness has not overcome it jesus is bringing this to fruition in our life there's an inbreaking kingdom. So what's here is both old. It's not the old set aside as irrelevant or non-essential, but it's the very fabric of the life of a Christian, the very fabric of the inbreaking, growing, advancing kingdom of God. And he lays out the test. Now he gets out of the test. So this is something new for us, but yet old. It's not, it's not new in that we've had it. Here's the test. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light. So again, here's another claim, another claim of knowledge, another claim of relationship, another claim of fellowship. Whoever says they are in the light and yet hates his brother is in, still in the darkness. Whoever claims to be in the light yet still hates his brother is in the darkness. And when Jesus is, or I'm sorry, when John here is speaking about 
brothers, sisters. He's not necessarily talking about biological family, although that could be included. He's speaking of the community of faith. He's speaking of the church, our relationship to one another as we claim to be in Jesus, as we're identified in him. Christianity isn't just a me and Jesus relationship from here through eternity. It's us and Jesus together. We are a people, a kingdom, a nation. He is our king and a ruler. He has saved us, rescued us. There's a communal life together. So the person who says, I'm in the light and yet hates his brother, still in the darkness. The test is the test of love. To know God is to love his people. To know God is to love his people. So John starts with a negative, and again, it's very clear here. No getting around it. If you hate other Christians, you're not in the light, period. You're in darkness. You're deceiving yourself. John even doubles down on this in verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, in the sphere of darkness. You're standing right there in it and walks in the darkness you're just following along the ways of darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You're standing in darkness, you're walking in darkness, and you're stumbling around in darkness because you're spiritually blind. And this is the test of the authenticity of our faith. Do we love one another? And whoever hates their brother or sister And because we're litigious like this and we have to figure out, okay, what does hate mean, all right? Well, hate is the idea of not longing for the other's good, hoping for their destruction, hoping for their despair, hoping for their bad to happen to them. Hate is looking at the other and saying, I hope it goes south for you. I just, I don't have any concern for you. I don't care for you. Just, I hope it turns bad towards you. Despising, loathing. What is, what is powerfully strong call here? We have been given an opportunity to assess the authenticity of our claims in Jesus based on how we treat one another. And the world's been given the same view. Do we love one another? To put it in the positive is there in verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That's the good news. If you love your brother, your sister, if you love the church, you're standing in the light. You remain in the light. And in them, in that person, in that place, there is no cause for stumbling. You won't trip over the darkness. That's the test. Our love for God is seen in our love for one another, for God's people. It's love for the church. Again, Francis Schaeffer put it this way. What Jesus is saying is that if I do not have the love I should have towards all Christians, the world, as they're looking in, has the right to make the judgment that I'm not a Christian. <clears throat> wow. The world gets to assess and look at my claims if I don't love other Christians and go, liar. That's what Jesus said. Again, the relationship of the family kind of illustrates, it helps us see this. Aspects of love that I have and hope my children have for me is also that they love their siblings, right? Mom and dad aren't really thrilled when the brothers and sisters are at war with each other. Doesn't really match up in the family. One despises and hates and mistreats the other. It's no good. Or take it another step further. Jesus uses the metaphor of the church and calling us his bride. 
You can't love Jesus and hate his bride because he loves his bride. Someone comes to me and says, Jeremy, you're pretty cool, but your wife, cool. no way, can't stand her. You got a problem with me there. That's how Jesus feels about his church. He expects that we love one another. He calls us to love one another. So the question is this, when the world looks at your life and when they look at how you treat other Christians, do they see love? Do they see the forgotten virtue? Do they see it there? Now, it's one thing for us to say, oh, of course they do. And we think about that in terms of the Christians that we actually like and the Christians that we really want to hang out with and the Christians we really love to love. I mean, the people that are easy for us, the people that, that look like us, that are probably the same age demographic and all that social stuff that we are. And we go, oh, yeah, I love them. I'm in. But Jesus is leaning in towards the people that kind of prickly towards us, we towards them, then maybe the people that we don't really love. What's it saying about our faith when we're around Christians who claim the name of Jesus, who put their faith and trust in his atonement for their sins, who've laid their life in his hands? What does it say about us when we look at those Christians and go, uh, not today? A Christian is one who loves the church, the bride of Christ, in its totality, not just the Christians that you're in a life group with or who have the same affinities for you that you do. It means for the whole church. And to apply that, some of you might need to get out of your little bubble or you're out of your little friend group of the church, just your little small demographic of the church, and see the church much more largely, in a much bigger way. You, you probably need to extend yourself to the whole church meaning you express and give yourself and receive from people who are younger or older than you. Perhaps you serve in places that aren't necessarily comfortable for you. They're not your niche, but you love the people of the church. You love God's people, and so it's not my thing, but I'm going to dive in because I love the church. Or you, or you get amongst the church. You're available to the church not just like, hey, give me an hour on Sunday and boom, out the door and we'll see you next week. But like you're investing yourself in relationships in the church, and people in the church, people you don't know, people who walk through these doors and like, I don't know them. I may, not, I may like them, I may not like them, but I'm in. This is how we just show love practically. Do we see that among each other? Do we see that in our own lives? Maybe I may ask it another way. Does the world see you loving Christians that you don't agree with, that you don't like? Or does the world see you slamming their DMs, their direct messages, just like the world does, shouting them down, shaming them, proving how right you are about something and how wrong they are, and you've got the high ground? Does the world see love? Or do they see you just treat the church like trash? I know we sit there and we want to be analytical and say, okay, here's, where's the loophole? What does it mean? What does love really look like? Okay, let me take you to it. 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to Paul's words, the words of the Holy Spirit here. What does love look like among the church? Right, we would like to read this passage at weddings because it's beautiful and pretty and just like, ooh, makes us feel good. Paul was writing this in 1 Corinthians 13 to a church that was having a whole lot of fights. In the midst of their spiritual gifting problems, he's like, let me tell you what love really looks like. Love is patient and kind. Is that how you are towards other believers? Even the believers you disagree with? Patient, kind. 
Love does not envy. It's not jealous of them, nor is it prideful over them. Love does not boast, stand over them in superiority and pride. Love is not arrogant. doesn't make yourself the big deal. It's not rude. It's gentle. It does not insist on its own way. Love isn't love that says, hey, I got to win at the cost of everybody else. It's not irritable or resentful. Love doesn't rejoice. It doesn't applaud and approve at wrongdoing. But love rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes the best. Believes all things. Love hopes. It looks at the other and says, you know what? In Christ, you are going to be incredible. And the future that Jesus has in you and for you is so great. So the person that's standing here in front of me today is not the person that's down the road being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So I'm looking to that person and believing and hoping in the best. It hopes all things. Love endures all things doesn't divide and conquer. It doesn't flail out. It doesn't separate. It says, I'm sticking in it with you. Is that what your love for the church, for other Christians looks like? And hear me well. I read these and I don't read these as condemning you. I read these and I hear them condemning me. I need this kind of love just as much. This is how the Spirit talks to us about how we are to examine our love for God, our our being in Him, our fellowship with Him. And it's, it's a high challenge for sure. True knowledge of God, true love of God is shown in obedience to His Word and love for His people. And this Word is for us today, the church in America, at Woodside in Plymouth, Michigan, at the start of the third decade of the 21st century, we have forgotten this virtue. We've forgotten this calling. I hope you're convicted this morning. I just put it that way. I put that in my notes. My aim has been, by the Spirit of God, you would be convicted about your obedience to Christ, your love for the church. But I want you to take your conviction to the right place. You see, there could be a big problem that we could read this text. You could hear me preach these things, these two tests, and you go, okay, let me examine myself. Obedience, doing pretty good there. Love for other Christians, yeah, you know, A minus. And what could happen is if that's your heart and that's your case, you're just going to puff yourself up with pride. Look how well I'm doing. Isn't God glad to have me on his team today? That's one danger. The other problem is you could hear this word and you could be challenged and convicted and go, oh, there's not much obedience. There's little love. Am I out? Do I really know God? We can't just sit there in this text. That's why I've got to take you to verses one and two because there are no perfect people in this. And you may hear this and you may go, am I out? Am I no good? Or you may be filled with pride and think you're great. Listen to what John says, my little children. It's a pastor, he says this to his church. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. His goal is for our holiness. But if anyone does sin, oh, there we are. That's us, right? If anyone does sin, well, what do we do? 
We have an advocate with the Father. We have one who stands for us in our place to the Father. Who is he? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So get it clear in your heart and mind that you are not accepted before God or not accepted before God based on what you have or have not done. Your pride doesn't get you before God. Your despair doesn't get you before God. Jesus is the righteous. He is the advocate. Furthermore, he is the propitiation or the the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He paid the penalty. He did what we could not do. He stood in our place and died for us, not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. What do we do with our despair or our pride? We go to Jesus, the righteous. He's the one who's died. He's the one who's dealt with our sins. So you hear this word and you're convicted, good. But go to Jesus. Take your sin to him. Take your disobedience and your little love for each other. Take it to Christ and rest in him. Trust him. Let him, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for your sins, be what brings you to fellowship with God and then grow in love, grow in holiness, grow in obedience. We're not saved by our performance, but by Christ's work. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. That's that's why we celebrate this morning the ordinance of the bread and the cup, communion to remind us we're not saved by our own work, as as successful as we can be or want to be at obedience and as successful as we want to be at love, that doesn't save us. Christ is our Savior. He's our help. So I'll give you just a second to kind of get that first layer off the bread there. But I want to give you a moment this morning to ponder and to meditate on the fact that Jesus has come and he has died for you. He stood in your place to give you fellowship with him and with the Father, to make the way by his Spirit for you to be obedient to him, to love one another. Jesus has done that by his cross. Let me invite you just to pray where you're at, quietly in your heart. Express your conviction of your sin. Express your need before Jesus. And then I'll lead us in partaking of the bread and the cup together. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.